Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide, that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Asif Sheikh. He's an MD, PhD. He's the Penny and Steven Weinberg Chair in Brain Health. He's also the Vice Chair in the Department of Neurology and an Associate Professor of Neurology and Biomedical Engineering at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. He's also the director of the National VA PD Consortium Center at Lewis Stokes Cleveland VA Medical Center. And we're going to talk about his work. So, Asif, thank you for coming. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, well, tell me about your your current uh, research. What's it involved? Sure. So my main focus is to understand how brain works and especially for how brain works for things that matter to us, uh, which is uh, perceiving our surrounds, how we react to what we perceive and how we act on uh, things that we want. And of course, this is much broader, right? So let me just emphasize a little more. So uh, my focus is basically on one of the very common neurological disorders uh, affecting the brain, which is called neurodegenerative conditions, particularly Parkinson's disease. Uh, And I'm also interested in another form of movement disorder called dystonia, which is also related somewhat in some extent to Parkinson's disease, another movement disorder, and is related to the way brain controls the movements. What I'm interested in is that how certain forms of brain diseases affecting your basal ganglia, which are the nuclei, which are deep in your brain or the or the part of the brain which controls balance, for example, cerebellum, how that affects your ability to perceive uh, your surrounds, perceive your movements, perceive the movements of things around you, allows you to appreciate the visual scenery around you and then to react 
to what you had perceived, right? So, and it is fundamentally important for patients with Parkinson's disease, for example, who fall a lot. More, about 70% of patients with Parkinson's disease fall very frequently. And this disease is so common, it affects millions of people throughout the world. So now if 70% of these patients fall and if they lead to major morbidity, it is important for us to control falls. And the way we intervene into this is how these patients perceive their environmental movement, their own movement, and how they act upon what they have perceived. So this is the big theme of my research. And I utilize different tools, uh, so to speak, to, to study these pathways, to study these mechanisms. And my patients are my partners in a way to study these. Uh, they participate in my study and I understand their disease. A lot of my patients have a machine called deep brain stimulator, which is a computer chip, which is implanted in their body and the electrical currents are given to their brain. Uh, and that allows us to modulate the way they perceive, the way they act on their perceived movements. And it also allows us to record the signal within the brain. So I take these type of tools in addition to the motion simulators and virtual reality to understand how humans perceive things around them and how we can implement that to prevent falls in patients with Parkinson's disease. First of all, what, what happens in Parkinson's to someone physiologically and then I want to ask you about why they fall, but tell me about that first. Sure. Parkinson's disease is a neurodegenerative condition. So what happens is that there are particular parts of the brain uh, where the neurons, they eventually degenerate, they die. And when that, that happens, those parts of the brain lose better control of your movement. So very common cliche about Parkinson's disease is these patients have tremor. So of course, tremor is one of the common problems that these patients have. But in addition to that, Parkinson patients also get slowness. They move, all type of movements they make is very slow. They also get uh, decreased reaction time. So let's say if you are standing and if I push you or if something comes to you and it, you get pushed, your body reacts back. Uh, to that push, right? If the patient has Parkinson's disease, their reaction time is much lower also. So that is another problem that they get. They get stiffness in their body. So uh, their body parts are very rigid and very stiff and it is difficult for them to move. And sometimes they get painful when you passively move them. But uh, why, why does that happen? Why do they get, you know, does anyone know what's happening in Parkinson's yeah. physiologically? Yeah, so there are parts of the brain called basal ganglia, and the basal ganglia, basically, they work as a regulator switch. So, you know, your brain has a cortex, which is a top part, and then you have rest of your body, and there are connections between the, the cortex and the rest of your body. So what happens is there is a regulator which works which works on the circuit which connects your brain with the rest of the body and that regulator is your basal ganglia what happens in parkinson's disease is there is an abnormal activity coming out of that regulator so imagine a fan there is a switch for the fan right but between the switch and the fan there is a regulator right so if your regulator is not working right then you cannot control the switch uh, the speed of your fan correctly right so parkinson is 
almost you can imagine as broken regulator of your brain function. So your brain is giving right commands, but they're not executed in a way they were in, intended. And what we try to do is how we can modulate that regulator to fix a specific function. And my, my area of research is to fix that regulator to fix how patients with Parkinson perceive their movements and how they react to that perception. So what, um, when Parkinson's begins versus it progresses, I mean, physiologically, what is happening? Like, why does Parkinson's even start? Is it a genetic basis or what's the thought process? So there are a lot of different etiologies for Parkinson. So definitely there is genetic causes for Parkinson. There are genes discovered which can lead to Parkinson, but not all Parkinson patients have genetic etiology. In some patients, it is also thought to be environmental related. The chemicals that people use for pesticides, for example, there is a very common correlation people have uh, discovered between pesticide use and Parkinson. Uh, Agent Orange also has some uh, relationship with uh, Parkinson in in, in our veterans who were in Vietnam era. Of course, strokes can also lead to damage in parts of the brain than it can lead to Parkinson's. And in some patients, simply we don't know what why they get Parkinson, but they do get it. And they don't have any of the, what we call risk factors. And and sometimes we believe that it can be multifactorial. You have some genetic buildup and some propensity. And on top of that, you get exposed to certain chemicals uh, and then you develop Parkinson. So there are, there are several risk factors and uh, they all together sometimes can lead to Parkinson or it can be simply idiopathic. Yeah, what goes on in the mind of the person with Parkinson's? Do they know that they have it? Do they feel things differently as it progresses in them? Or do they, like, what's their mindset? And again, what are they aware of or not aware of? Well, uh, it's a very good question. And it's, uh, I would say it's more of a philosophical question. I mean, there are certain things that they know that is very obvious, and they can tell that they have Parkinson, or or we can tell that they have Parkinson. And of course, one of the most common, if you do, if you read the medical textbook, it will say tremor stiffness and false, right? So these are the three things which are very commonly present in Parkinson's disease. If an an elderly person comes to your clinic with a lot of tremor, a lot of stiffness, they have stooped posture. They, when they walk, they make a short stride length when they walk and they have more than usual false. One can tell easily that there is Parkinson's disease, of course, but Parkinson actually starts way before we know that it is there. Uh, What happens is that it is be related to loss of the neurons in the brain, right? In that regulator switch, right? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. 
but the effects of that loss does not manifest until it reaches substantially high number percent of cells are gone. Uh, what we call there is subclinical de novo Parkinson, which is present. And, uh, and now we know that it can be present for dec decades before it really manifests. Constipation, for example, or lack of smell, for example, are some of the very common signs of early Parkinson's disease. And we have had patients who had constipations for decades before they were even diagnosed with Parkinson or lack of smell. Uh, although those are the symptoms which in retrospect we can say could be related, but that does not mean that if you lose smell that you have, you're going to have Parkinson, you can't stay that way. Because if you pick random person in Northeast Ohio, most of them will have some sort of sinusitis and you will get lack of smell, right? Constipation is so common with our type of diet. Uh, frequently, people get that. So you can't tell that you have constipation and you are going to develop Parkinson's disease. But in retrospect, somebody has Parkinson, you ask them their history, they would tell you that for decades, they have been suffering for frequent constipation. So there are, there are certain uh, features which are more non-specific, but there is this obvious correlation with Parkinson's disease. One thing that one would be really interested in, and that is major theme and focus of contemporary research is to find the early markers of Parkinson's disease. If somehow we can figure out very reliable early markers that will give you opportunity to launch uh, newer treatments whenever they are available to prevent the disease and that early marker would be key. And there can be more than one of them that can be a, an equation that if it fulfills certain criteria, then you can tell with certain certainty that patient is going to develop Parkinson's disease. But we don't have an early marker, which, which for sure tells you that you are going to develop Parkinson. We don't have that so far. But physiologically, why is there the death of these particular neurons? You know, I know Alzheimer's has been talked about a lot. No you know, tau tangos, beta amyloid plaques. Yes. Um, are there any histological features yes. that identify oh, this person had Parkinson's? Yeah. It. So Parkinson is called synuclopathies. So there are alpha synuclein, and there is an excessive deposition of those alpha synucleins, and that synuclopathy then is manifest as Parkinson's disease. But Parkinson's disease is not the only synuclopathies. You can have a cousin of Parkinson, which is called multiple systems atrophy. That is also synuclopathies. And another atypical form of Parkinson, which is progressive supranuclear palsy, which is not synuclopathy, but those are tau proteins. So there are certain depositions of proteins which are abnormally excessive and uh, they're deposited in the cell and that then lead to degeneration of those neurons. Are people studying how to block the physiological effects, the negative ones, or is that there not are, even on the radar? For some reason with Alzheimer's, that seems to be the number one focus, but is that with Parkinson's? Uh, yes, indeed. There are a lot of labs who are focusing on um, prevention and treatment of Parkinson's disease, and they have been focusing on molecular pathways of synuclopathies. Of course, that is not the focus of my lab or my career, but I know that there are lots of um, various colleagues of ours who uh, they have made careers out of it or they are making careers out of it. And there is definitely very good promise in that direction as well. So what is the focus of your research? What are you trying to figure out in particular? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes.
So my focus of my research is more, I'm more of a systems uh, neuroscience person. So uh, my area of focus is within systems neuroscience. So what we are trying to study is how the circuits in the brain are connected normally and how Parkinson's disease affects that normal organization of the circuit. And our focus is on the circuit which controls balance and uh, visual spatial navigation. So how... Uh, the balance circuit is affected in patients with Parkinson's disease. What is the role of an area called basal ganglia? Or what is the role of cerebral cortex? What is the role of cerebellum? And then what I am trying to study is where in that circuit I can go in with a programmable electrode and I can modulate that circuit to prevent balance, to prevent, to, to get better visual spatial navigation and to prevent falls. So that's the overarching theme of my research. So what we call, it's called neuromodulation. So my area of focus is more neuromodulation of uh, the neural circuit, which causes Parkinson's disease. Well, in particular for falls, is there a particular, again, physical manifestation that you can see in how the nerves operate in the nerve pathways that causes a fall? Like are there particular parts of the body affected or is it just the brain controlling the limbs that causes the fall? It's a, it's a very good question, uh, Richard. It's more of a multifactorial phenomenon. So fall can happen in patients with Parkinson's because of more than one reason. One could be, as you, as, as we know that Parkinson patients have lower reaction time, right? So they can't quickly catch up with their balance when they get perturbation in their movement, right? The second is they get a lot of involuntary movements to begin with, which can throw them off of balance their body, and then they cannot react to it in time, and then they can fall. The third is that they have a poor uh, visual navigation as well. And our uh, work from our lab uh, has shown that they have they have problem with uh, visual scanning the environment to appreciate the depth of the environment. And when you have lack of that, uh, that can lead to poor judgment uh, in navigating around, and that can lead to falls. And, uh, and of course, abnormal activity within the basal ganglia uh, also leads to impairment in how they perceive their own movements, like in their whole body movement, whether I'm walking straight ahead, or I'm walking bit to the right or bit to the left, is my body tilted to some extent, Uh, those are very important information which your brain needs to control balance. And when you don't have that, that would then also lead to falls. So so it's not one cause, it's more than one reasons for a patient to fall. And of course, your approach to treat falls has to be holistic as well. And that's what we are trying to do. We are trying to figure out the best location in the brain, which can minimize your uh, excessive involuntary movements, such as tremors or fidgety movements like dyskinesias or, or abnormal twists and turns of the body like dystonias. At the same time, the location which can also improve the way you perceive your environment, the way you perceive or, uh, the surrounds, and it also gives you better perception of your own movement. So we are trying to look for a sweet spot in the brain, in the circuit. Uh, when we modulate that sweet spot, it can affect as much of substrate as possible to address faults in Parkinson's. So that's what we are trying to study. Okay. So people don't, they don't know that they're not standing up straight or is there like a disconnect with what their senses are telling them and the interpretation of that data? Like That is correct. You know, that is so correct. someone that has Parkinson's, they may be what, leaning or 
lurching as they walk and they won't even realize or like what yeah. what does the mental disconnect look like so a lot of times patients think that they are walking straight but they may be veering to one side a lot of times we see patients with parkinson constantly tilt in one orientation like a pisa tower right like they are kind of just tilted but they don't appreciate that they are tilted and and they have poor reaction time so this is about the balance and special orientation the second problem could be their perception of of the of the visuals around so our latest data from our lab where we ask people let's say if i am uh, i am giving a picture in the picture there is a coffee cup right so if i am asking a patient to look for a coffee cup on a kitchen counter parkinson patients are most likely to rapidly reach the place where the normally the cup would be for example but if cup is not there they are less likely to move on to a different different place on the counter where the cup could be while normal people can quickly surround and find the cup while parkinson patients have difficulty in doing that so that is uh, that is another issue that we have found in patients with parkinson so what are I don't know this is just a, have you, has anyone been able to even pause the progression of parkinsons like how fast does it progress and what are some of the factors that modulate how fast or slow it progresses I wish we had a better answer to to that uh, problem unfortunately you cannot there are some studies which were done in past which claim to slow down the rate of parkinson but so far there is not any robust treatment we don't have a pill that pill i give you which kind of like robustly slows down your parkinson rate there's nothing like that which exists uh we do know that certain types of parkinson they're more malignant they are more rapid uh compared to the others typically when patients who at onset if they develop robust tremor for example uh those patients with are more likely to do better with parkinson of course they will also progress but their progression of parkinson is not as malignant as somebody who gets parkinson and does not have any tremor what what we call akinetic rigid syndrome like people are rigid and they are they can't move that well uh, those type of patients are more likely to go down faster compared to somebody who has a lot of tremor at onset what happens in the progression over time to a person so everybody is a kaleidoscope okay and you know kaleidoscope right like every turn of a kaleidoscope gives you different pattern there is not a single patient that i have who is identical to my another single patient everybody is very different everybody has their own presentation everybody's brain is wired differently as a result everybody gets their disease manifest in a little bit of a different way so there's always a minor differences between one patient with parkinson to the other so they manifest and they progress in at different rates they can progress at different uh, in different features and some people uh, tremor can progress very rapidly but their falls are relatively better controlled uh, while in some patients you can have a lot of falls but they won't have tremor some patients can freeze as they are walking uh, and then they would fall uh, while the other patients won't have that so everybody so there are like several motor and non-motor features of parkinson's disease and uh, they all can progress at different rate and different levels in different severity so there are some common features but everybody is different to some extent 
so it leads to death and if so what what's the cause of death for people that have it so and when does it typically happen yeah so parkinson does not lead to death for sure it is not the primary cause of death however mortality is not uncommon in patients who have advanced form of parkinson's disease related to the causes which are secondary to parkinson's so the severe end stage worse forms of parkinson patients they can have they can fall they can hit their head somewhere and they can have bleed in their brain and then they can pass because of the bleeding in the brain some patients do have poor swallowing uh, they uh, they their food can end up in a wrong pipe or their uh, spit can go end up in the wrong pipe and they can aspirate uh, when they aspirate uh, that can then lead to pneumonia and infection and then secondarily from infection they can they can die or in some patients they can fall and they can get fractures and then fractures can lead to embolism fat or air and that in turn can lead to cardiovascular event and then it, they can die from that so parkinson never kills the patient but the consequence is a Parkinson's too. So that is very important to prevent the bad consequences of Parkinson. And then going back to my research, that's why we are very interested in falls because if somehow we can figure out a way to reduce falls in patients with Parkinson, it will definitely help us to reduce the mortality and morbidity. A lot of patients with Parkinson get admitted to the hospital. Why? Because they fell, they broke their hip, they fell, they broke their head. Uh, if we can somehow get a better grip of preventing falls, uh, it will make a big difference in the quality of life of Parkinson patients. Not only, not, okay. not just reduce the mortality, but also the morbidity. Does Parkinson's appear to have a tropism for certain tissues? Does it start first in certain tissues and then progress? Or is it random and each person experiences it differently? Um, like I was saying, the early, very early Parkinson, it can start in the gut. It can start in the olfactory mucosa. Uh, people uh, very early on in their disease course, even before, decades before their usual Parkinson symptoms appear, uh, they seem to lose the sense of smell. They seem to have more constipation. So there is more and more evidence now that it can even start in the gut. It can start into the olfactory system. But clinically speaking, by the time they get to our clinics and by the time we diagnose them with Parkinson, it is either they got, they're getting excessive stiffness, slowness, change in their handwritings, the movements that require dexterity, or they get tremor. And these are all very frequently, they can be related to the problem with the structure called basal ganglia, again, which is the regulator switch in your brain, which controls the impulse going in and out of the brain. So, okay, what kind of solutions are people proposing? I mean, if it starts a lot of times, let's say, at the gut, is it a gut dysbiosis? You know, what's the most current thinking on what, what will move the needle for Parkinson's patients and why it happens? In my field, uh, especially where I am, my focus is to look for the ways to address the circuit problem, right? The systems problem. That my goal would be to find a better target in the brain, which we can modulate then it can prevent falls or it can prevent tremor or it can um, reduce their stiffness, right? So that is, that, is, that is the goal. And finding a more ideal customized area for each patient would be 
the way the we, one can move the needle forward. Everybody is not the okay. same. Customized medicine is the key. That's the way to go. And and we strive to do the customized approach for our patients. And that's I think that's the future. Does it affect uh, women more than men or certain ethnicities? Like what are the commonalities of Parkinson's that people have observed? Well, I mean, it, there's no specific gender difference within Parkinson's disease in patients with Parkinson's disease, or there are no, not much in a way of cultural differences as well. So in this country, I don't, uh, I don't see obvious differences in the practice. Of course, in, in the veterans hospital like ours, we tend to see more male Parkinson patients compared to women, just simply because of the recruitment bias, more male are likely to go to military. And as a result, more male veterans we see in our clinic. But if I go out in community, in my other uh, part of my job at university hospital, uh, we do see men and women in comparable numbers uh, developing Parkinson's disease. Do men and women experience it differently? Or there are certain ethnicities, again, that experience it differently? Or is it all the same? Is the progression different? The progression or experience experience uh, other clinical features do not have any gender differences they can they experience similar okay well very good well asif what's the best way for people to find out more about your research and uh, is there a general parkinson's resource for people listening uh, there are a lot of uh, websites for general parkinson resources they can go to american parkinson's disease association website parkinson's disease foundation websites those who are veterans they can go to VA Parkinson Consortium Centers or websites, and they can find information there. There are most of the major towns in our country, uh, they have Parkinson support groups. So there are other people who are uh, victims of Parkinson's. They all meet, they discuss their experience, their symptoms. Um, so if we can find such support groups in your area, that would be a good resource for Parkinson care also. To learn more about my research, I am more than happy to talk to my prospective candidates, prospective patients, or people who want to work with me to discuss with me directly about the patients, uh, about about my work. We are also putting together a lab web page where one can find some information and the literature which we are publishing, which is funded by the federal monies that is also available uh, for free on PubMed Central. So those who are interested can even review our literature. But I am more than happy to talk with anyone who wants to talk to me in person or the email uh, or on phone to educate them more about the research. Different ways. Happy to help in any way I can. Okay. Well, very good. Awesome. Thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Richard. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.